0: Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Doug Johnson-Poneskin, founder and CEO of Circular. Today's a special episode. It marks the 100th episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. 100 episodes and 100 countries. That's right, folks. We're listened to in over 100 countries. The listeners keep coming. We love the feedback that you're getting. So thank you for listening. And uh, a huge shout out and a huge thank you to Marcy Hyman, who's our executive producer. Without her this wouldn't be possible. So Marcy, thanks for doing what you do to make SAE Tomorrow Today possible. For everybody into to the team that supports Marcy, thank you so much. And, and to highlight the 100th episode, we touched on a topic that's an emerging topic. It is the future. It's transparency. Doug and I discussed transparency in the supply chain and the future of the circular economy. The circular economy is the future. For 100 episode, we touched on it. We hope you enjoy this 100th episode and we look forward to bringing you great content for another 100 episodes. So thank you so much listeners, we really appreciate it. Doug, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me to join you today.
0: Today's a special day. It's the 100th episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Well, some episodes we focus on the past, today we're focusing on the future and what you and the wonderful team at Circular are doing. You're building the future, you're ushering in the circular economy, which will play a major role in geopolitics and global economics. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation and thank you so much for being the one hundredth guest of the SE yes, Tomorrow today podcast.
1: I'm very honored. Thank
0: you. <laughs> Doug, you open a newspaper, you're at a dinner party, and years ago you can talk about the weather, kids' athletics, and today it's supply chain, supply chain. Oh, I ordered a coffee pot. Well I haven't gotten it in a month. I've ordered a MacBook. I haven't gotten it. There's all these supply disruptions that are now part of the, let's just call it the the chatter, the friendly chatter. What are your thoughts on the global supply chain?
1: Yeah, um, nice to start with an easy one. The last 24 months have have made us all not only expert epidemiologists, clearly, but um, we've all suddenly realized that we are quite reliant on global supply chains in a way that we as consumers probably didn't really recognize beyond the delivery of Amazon parcels you know, whether it's a shortage of loo rolls or other things. But, but actually, you know, scale back from the, the sort of the trivial comment, I think increasingly we also also realise as consumers that the things that we consume have consequences. They have consequences for where things are sourced uh, and the conditions in which they're sourced, including raw materials. We all, I think, increasingly start to realise that, you know, deforestation plays a part, for example, in production of palm oil or other, other commodities. And I think most of us probably recognise that, that the things that we want to buy shouldn't necessarily harm either people or planet. And, and if we were having this conversation sort of 10 years ago, I suspect that wouldn't necessarily have been a universal thought. I want to pick on one particular element of it, and, and that's to sort of harm the planet. Manufacturing the things that we consume is enormously carbon intensive. At the start of last year, the World Economic Forum published Um, a a report called the Supply Chain Opportunity, which talked about the eight most polluting industrial supply chains, which include automotive, aerospace, construction, and a number of others. Uh, And together they account for something like 50% of all global carbon emissions. Uh, And the challenge, particularly if we're talking about vehicles, of course, is that, you know, as we move towards electric vehicles, that becomes the problem for the car manufacturer or the auto manufacturer in a way that previously carbon emissions was the responsibility of us, the consumer to drive less. (laughs) And uh, and that means that it's shining a light on some of these complex industrial supply chains, which perhaps wasn't necessarily the case before.
0: One complex supply chain that's in the news a lot is electric vehicles. Mines use big, heavy equipment that spit out carbon when the minerals are refined and then there's no transparency around this whole. The mindset they use renewable energy. Well, how do you prove it? Well, they said they reduced their carbon. There's, there's no transparency, there's no clarity. It's like, I drive an electric vehicle, it's the cleanest thing in the world, but when you go into the supply chain, it's I hate to say it, it's it's not so clean, it's actually rather dirty. And here you are, you, we're having this conversation, you found circular, you've got a great business tagline that I want to tell the audience, better business through traceability. Did you see this opportunity to do good for the planet, good for society, cleaning it all up by bringing traceability? And on the backside, you're also bringing accountability.
1: The challenge for most of us is that, you know, the, the manufacturer um, has previously had only a hazy view of what happens beyond their tier one supplier. Um, and of course, if you abstract again, you know, making uh, rock into things that roll, since we're talking about automotive, is enormously energy intensive. And sometimes we're sourcing that rock from from, you know, colorful places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which come with concerns around both corruption and human rights abuses. And so, you know, the answer to all of those things is a greater understanding of what it is that one inherits and the ability through that greater understanding. You talked about transparency in order to be able to 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 manage those risks around both responsible sourcing and doing business sustainably, which we sort of summarized as doing business better.
0: Colorful is an interesting way to describe the DRC. I think there's a, there's a lot of not nice things that happened. We had the uh, the blood diamond issue, and that became mm. a movie. Do we have a blood cobalt issue, or does is that raise a big celebrity gets behind us to kind of shine a light on, on yeah. the human rights violations that happen down there?
1: I mean, uh, th- 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 there's a reason why conflict minerals regulations exist. Now, the conflict minerals, you know actually you know gold tin tungsten and tantalum but cobalt is often regarded as one of them and of course the kimberley uh, process was intended for diamonds because of the concern around blood diamonds but you know uh, again all of those are examples of often subsistence mining which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do as long as it doesn't come with either theft of natural resources which means that all the wealth of a country is is leached out of that country um, to fund warlords or organised crime, or you know the, the mass and industrial ex- exploitation of some of the poorest people on the planet, and it's those those concerns that that one is trying to address through improving traceability, through improving accountability of, of what goes on within supply chains.
0: It's very positive for society. Because we're seeing what's happening in the oil markets today around you know, funding bad actors. We saw what happened in in Cuba. We, there's all in Venezuela. We've seen all these different markets in the oil market where it's a very opaque market. There's stories in um, Javier Blas' book, The World for Sale, where they, they paint the back of the the, the the carrier and change the name to get around sanctions and sit the same thing in Iran. And on that front, you gave a really wonderful interview in, in November 2021 to the London Evening Standard where you, you talked about the opaque market, and I want to read this quote because it means a lot to me. Supply chain fraud is old as mankind. Even today, making false promises in supply chains is an epidemic. So the idea you are able to record reliable information at a source alongside attaching data around carbon footprint or working towards conditions or water use, and that it cannot be changed as the material undergoes its journey is the real value. What you described as the future of the global supply chain
1: yeah, correct. I mean, I, that first bit around supply chain fraud is as well as mankind. It's why we have certifiers. Exactly a year ago, almost to the day, a commodity trader called Mercuria bought $36 million worth of copper from Turkey, which when it arrived turned out to be painted stone. Now, that sounds like the sort of thing that might have happened 50 years ago, but it's happening right now. Now, that's obviously something that Bloomberg picked up and reported on, but um, there are many examples. And, you know, the the challenge always is about how do you build trust in a very distributed network of participants? These global supply chains involve many, many tiers of suppliers. Whether you're trying to manage risks of responsible sourcing, risks of authenticity, which is that that's an example of, or increasingly trying to understand, you know, that rules of origin are, are being met, that materials have not come from sanctioned countries that, for example, the embedded carbon or the other ESG metrics associated with the commodity are real, particularly if you're going to start to try and price for better quality material um, based on its characteristics like lower carbon or other, other things. How, how, this is fascinating, but how circular able to do this? What we're doing is is creating a, a digital twin for a commodity at its source, and then following that commodity on its journey. Now, the, the complexity you mentioned, blood diamonds earlier, diamonds earlier. The complexity, of course, is that it's you know a diamond is a diamond at a mine site, and it's still a diamond at the other end of the supply chain, albeit cut and polished. Its fundamental physical characteristics haven't changed. It's the same with food traceability: a strawberry is a strawberry in the field, and a strawberry in the supermarket. Challenge here, of course, is that ore out of mine site is nothing like an EV battery and so you know you're having to follow that material on its multiple both chemical and physical transformations through that supply chain. I often liken that you know each step to a cake recipe so much flour so many eggs so much sugar goes through a defined mixing process in a recipe spends an hour in the oven um, and then you get a cake. Only a TV chef can make a cake in three minutes. And and so that combination of you know, mass balance at the, at the individual batch level plus elapsed time allows you to say that this cake was made from this flour. And of course, if you end up with 20 cakes, you introduce material of unknown origin into that simple recipe. And imagine that being repeated multiple times through every tier of the supply chain. And this data is coming directly from the quality management or production management systems of of the actors within the supply chain, where a subset of that data, which a human hasn't touched, allows you to connect goods in to start a production, to end a production, to goods out many times over. So that's the basic method. When you understand the flow of materials, and obviously there, there are many participants in the supply chain at each tier of the supply chain, you can add an attributable slice of data around for example embedded scope one and two emissions in order to calculate scope three emissions through the whole supply chain saying on
0: the cake analogy so thomas keller has a flower called cup for cup it's gluten-free flour so when you buy it you know that it's gluten-free so you're using the cake analogy you're taking the cup for cup flour putting it into the global supply chain so the individual at celiac they can't have the gluten they're ensured that okay this is gluten-free and your customer that's ensured that they're buying what's called the properly sourced mineral uh, raw material that everything goes along with it game changing how often does that digital twin update do your customers have a a dashboard that they can see the whole process or how does
1: that work yes so that data is sort of aggregated and added to during the life of the material and that elapsed time could be six more months Uh, and clearly the upstream producers have in many cases no idea which downstream OEM will eventually inherit their material unless there was a direct supply deal and the material is told to the supply chain. And so, you know, what the car manufacturer at the downstream end gets is is a number of dashboards which include, you know, the, the, the material journey, um, a you know, typical Sankey chart showing how much came from where over time, and a whole variety of other metrics, uh, uh, a sort of an attributable carbon footprint and other ESG metrics. And you can drill into all of this if you really wanted to, not that anyone will. You could go all the way down to the photograph of the miner, perhaps at the Artisanal mine site, with a photograph of the, of the tag that was first attached to a 30 kilo bag of cobalt ore, which is something... Perhaps an auditor would do to be able to prove to themselves that this was real, but obviously, you know, it is the abstraction of this information and the, and the development or the, the the development of intelligence and actionable intelligence from all this this aggregated data that's most valuable at the downstream end.
0: I'm going to put my investor hat on here. So you can open a Bloomberg terminal or you open a Refinitiv terminal, and they have the ESG. So if you use like Rio Tinto or BHP, or if you want to. Use a large publicly traded company. Let's just use Google for example, which is Alphabet. You can see their ESG ranking. At some point, for the, the the publicly traded your customers that are publicly traded, like Traffic Era is a customer of yours. Does that ESG data get pumped into the Bloomberg terminals, the relative data that they can see as an investor? Okay. This is the ESG ranking, pulling in that real-time data. And then for the auditors, the Ernst & Youngs, the KPMGs of the world, they can get their audit trail. So you're kind of serving two masters, creating a new business?
1: Yeah, they will do. Um, today, as you know, the, the, you know, ESG is often the war of the glossy brochure. We're still in we're still in that space where you know regulators, are, you know, SEC commissioners recently quoted as sort of lamenting the fact that it was quite difficult to compare ESG claims between different listed entities. Um, and that's, you know, some will call it greenwashing but it's currently quite difficult to assess you know who's doing better than somebody else Um, and of course you need objective data for it and both ifrs and the issb you know accounting standards bodies are working on audit standards for esg claims this is good news because what it means is that a listed company when it reports its esg performance is going to have to be able to stand up the scrutiny of their auditors against a defined set of global standards the other advantage of that kind of auditing is it then becomes the basis for, for example, price discovery in commodity markets. You know, one of the challenges with something like green aluminium is that my definition of green aluminium may be different to your definition. And while that could enable a spot market, you and I can agree that something is what, you know, what it is and it has a certain price. That's not yet the basis for a contract in a, you know, a commodity exchange. So there's a way to go, but every journey starts somewhere. Every journey starts somewhere. And I'm going to
0: throw out this term here, which I would describe your company. You're the truth detectives.
1: Yeah, I I often I I often use the term that we're pioneering proof. Same theme. You're bringing
0: transparency, which I thank you for that. Um, I said to Ellen Carey and your team, you're the real deal Holyfield, which I absolutely love that (laughs) line. What role did your background in cybersecurity play? Because it seemed you have a great understanding of all the, the you understand the political risks, and then with your background in cyber, you understand all the, the nuanced cyberists. What did that background play as you started to craft the circular company?
1: The, the real answer is that I had a lot of cryptographers working for me at British Telecom, where I, I launched BT's cyber business. And, and in about 2010, they were all getting very excited about this little thing called Bitcoin. Now, they all had the foresight to actually buy some Bitcoin, and most of them are now running surf shacks on beautiful beaches. Um, I didn't have the foresight to buy Bitcoin. I started wondering, because my background's in enterprise technology, where might this technology have some real world use? Um, uh, well, here, here we are, as the, the you know, here's an example of the use of, of, of blockchain alongside other technologies. But, um, you know, it, it that was the start of the thinking around, um, you know, w- where could one use blockchain? And actually, you know, the underlying one of the underlying ingredients of blockchain, which is the, the the vernacular for a distributed ledger, is a combination of not just multiple copies of the same record, but also cryptography between them that keeps them essentially in sync and, and that you are creating an immutable record of what's going on in a supply chain. In the context of this conversation, the reason why a blockchain makes a difference is because you're creating... Uh, an immutable record, essentially notarizing transactions that happen with many, many months between them, so that history can't be rewritten if it subsequently proves to be inconvenient.
0: So the blockchain technology is allowing you, going back to what I said earlier, bring transparency to an opaque market that necessarily doesn't like transparency?
1: Correct. Yeah that's exactly that. I mean in, interestingly there's there's a growing acceptance of greater levels of transparency within some of these supply chains particularly for materials like cobalt and nickel and and, and lithium which all come with either responsible sourcing or environmental concerns and uh, you know for some time there has been an expectation of you know declaring which actors were involved for example in in the cobalt supply chain because of concerns of child labor you know the battery passport regulations in Europe will eventually require a, a, a carbon footprint per battery plus demonstration of responsible sourcing of all the raw materials and and that just means that it'll be a price of doing business
0: taking that one step forward will there be some point that the OEM the vehicle manufacturer will have to have a recycling plan as part of that yes.
1: Um, it, it's So firstly, they do, because actually, you know, recycling material is less energy intensive than turning virgin rock into battery grade materials the first time. But the, the added complexity, certainly in Europe, is that they are looking to potentially use carbon border adjustment taxes as a way of encouraging the second life use of batteries prior to their recycling, which creates a bit of attention for auto manufacturers who, of course, you know, then get left with the continual challenge of responsibly sourcing sufficient volumes of, of of raw material. And that hasn't yet played out. We're probably a good 10 years away from recycled material providing sufficient feedstock for the next generation of batteries. So yes is the, is the short answer. The slightly longer answer is not yet.
0: We're getting there because Circular is working with, with Polestar to develop the world's first carbon-free car. What role is Circular are playing in that's allowing Polestar to do that.
1: Yeah. Um, so just, just for context, Pol- Polestar has, has declared a, a target to create what they call the Polestar zero, a net zero car by 2030. Now, most auto manufacturers are declaring net zero targets sort of end of 2030, uh, 2030s, 2040 timescale. To try and do it 10 years sooner is pretty audacious. The, the hypothesis that underpins their work with us is you can't manage something you can't measure. And a life cycle assessment is a is a static measurement at a point in time of of your generic supply chain, often based on benchmark data. Bear in mind that supply chains are not linear. Very few supply chains have you know one to one to one to one relationships between the participants, and so you know the carbon footprint of your battery is based in part on the. The, the uncontrolled buying behavior of, of midstream participants, uncontrolled in that sustainability plays no part. It's about price and availability more than it is any sustainability characteristics. And so the idea is that if you can understand you know the flow of materials through your supply chain, through the many tiers of your supply chain, and, and seek to use that insight to buy more sustainably, um, essentially working with your battery suppliers to specify routes through the supply chain that are increasingly sustainable using larger proportions of renewable electricity. You can get yourself some way there. For context, for those that don't, that, that, that don't know this, you know, 80% of the carbon emissions of a new EV are the contribution of the supply chain. And roughly half of that is the EV battery. A battery has 12 ingredients which is you know, pretty simple compared to the other 20,000 widgets that make up your car. So it's a prize worth chasing
0: first. 80% of the carbon could be cleaned up in the supply chain. Let's clean it up. That changes yeah. the game for society yeah. and for the environment.
1: Correct. Correct. Circular
0: as a partnership with BHP, the miner, and, and Southwire, US copper cable and wire manufacturer, to trace BHP copper cathodes and associated greenhouse gas emissions through a finished product. From southwire's manufacturing facilities using circular's blockchain-based technology and bhp's carbon offsetting capabilities is that kind of what you've been alluding to earlier that you're coming together with partnerships to track yeah. and trace everything
1: that's an example of an upstream actor bhp working directly with their downstream customer if you like to bookend the supply chain and between them try and make make sure that the Relative sustainability measures of the raw material are not destroyed by uncontrolled activity by the midstream before that product ends up at the downstream. And and that particular example you just quoted is the first time that there's been a carbon neutral delivery of copper anywhere in the world, which is why BHP issued a press release about it. Now, you know, clearly you want to be confident that the copper you receive has actually you know, is genuinely the the carbon neutral stuff, if that's what you're paying for. Uh, but actually, if you're going to try and bookend a supply chain to make sure that the, you know, the midstream participants are, are supporting that sustainability objective, then you do need traceability to do it. Um, Trafigura, by the way, is working on a very similar thing around nickel. Nickel is enormously energy intensive to turn from, you know, ore into battery grade material. Uh, and, and there isn't enough of the of the good stuff around that means that we'll soon be trying to turn nickel pig iron into battery grade material, which risks, you know, largely wiping out the benefits of the energy transition if it isn't done with sustainable electricity. And so, again, traceability and certification of that supply chain is, is a fundamental tenet of you know, ensuring that you're actually reducing carbon emissions rather than just greenwashing about it. Carbon neutral
0: copper, I'm going to put on my investor hat here. Will that trade for a premium of non-traditional carbon neutral copper?
1: Now, it's interesting, so Rusal tried this a number of years ago, of course, with, with green aluminium, and, and at the time there wasn't really a market for it, but you know, we've since seen commodity exchanges like the London Metal Exchange, with its sustainability strategy, trying to create a, a spot market for you know, commodities that have you know, green or other ESG credentials, where the buyer and the supplier can agree a price which potentially is a premium on, on you know, the stuff that doesn't come with those benefits. Um, if you're a car manufacturer and you have a net zero target then you know there's you can spend a great deal of money in R&D trying to engineer out carbon but actually just buying a bit smarter might also help you on your journey so i do see a potential premium i think there are other commo- well i know that there are other commodity exchanges looking at versions of this as well because i think you know we there's a finite pool of raw materials that are either sourced in countries we're prepared to do business with you know, resource security is an increasing concern, a desire for locally recycled materials, uh, certainly critical natural resources, as well as more sustainable materials. And, and in, in my view, there will be some price differentiation in time, particularly when you can prove it. But And that proof becomes the basis for price discovery.
0: Let's take it one step further. Turn on the news, sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. You hear it all on the news. So if you have a, a, a metal or a mineral that's carbon neutral, that's made in, let's call it a quote unquote, safe area that the, the, the UN or the IMF or the United States said, okay, or the EU, this is a safe country to do business with. That premium's going to go through the roof, especially you do that. And then you put a carbon neutral on top of that. You've got a yes. pretty massive premium there. And so is that something that the, you mentioned, like the London Metals Exchange, do they go into that? Or is that we're looking at the futures market with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange? Or where, where do you see that kind of going?
1: I think I, so. I believe that's exactly where it's going. The challenge is price discovery. You know, how do you, you know, what is, what is the accepted standard and what should the price for that standard be? At the moment, we were talking about this earlier in the context of ESG reporting, there aren't really a common set of standards yet, which is why I think that, you know, the approach to a spot market that LME is doing is probably a good first step. I think it's coming though.
0: Standards are awesome. SAE is a standards body, so I'm all, I'm all for standards because they bring they transparency they, and they make assets investable. So I love that. Yeah. Outside of the investing side, how important is tracking greenhouse gas emissions for your customers and partners is it, that they're getting ESG pressures, that they genuinely believe in this, or what's really driving that?
1: There are three broad drivers that I see at the moment, and, and you know, different organizations put slightly different weight on each of them. The first is a, an understanding that consumers increasingly care, whether it's about, you know, made in America or, you know, greener. It doesn't matter what the criteria is, consumers care. And, and of course, some brands are actively trying to differentiate on, on those criteria. An example would be Volvo Cars, which is one of our customers, which has sort of made doing business responsibly and sustainably an extension of the safety brand they've had for 50 years. The, the adverts from the 1960s are about a child in the back of the Volvo, which then had the reputation for being a tank, keeping your child safe. Now that same child is driving past windmills. And of course, the message is, you know, we have a responsibility to keep your child safe, not just in the vehicle, but also into the world that they're growing up into. And it's working. Volvo Cars is seeing its sales grow in many car manufacturers, even in the world of chip shortages. Are seeing sales decline. So you know, sustainability is potentially a driver of top-line growth. So that's one example. The challenge for consumers is how do you, you know, how do you inform yourself? The second driver comes from um, regulators. Obviously, I, I mentioned the battery passport regulations in Europe. But, you know, in the U.S., we've now got a Uyghur law and and there's lots of discussion about made in America and keeping critical natural resources in in America once they get there. You know, all those things create an environment which requires folks to be able to demonstrate where stuff came from. And the third driver, and this is the one that I think is probably the real accelerant Mm -hmm. to this journey, is actually from the financial community. Uh, Mark Carney was quoted, the former governor of the Bank of England, quoted at uh, at COP26 saying, we'll starve the most polluting industries of capital. And Larry Fink, in his annual letter to investors, has, has regularly pushed on this theme around doing business more responsibly in an effort to try and address things like carbon emissions and global warming. Uh, And that is making this a subject of conversation in boardrooms, and that's starting to trickle down into, for example, roles like, you know, chief procurement officer or chief sustainability officer that's starting to worry about what what is an organization, a manufacturer of any product responsible for, not just only in their own operations, but in terms of, you know, what they buy and who they buy it from. And so, the, we've already had, for example, a, a large construction company come to us with a project around solar panels saying, I cannot get my bank to finance this until I can prove that there's no Uyghur labor in my solar panel supply chain. And silicon oxide is, is one of those materials which, you know, m- much of it comes from parts of China which, where there are concerns around things like Uyghur labor. And so you know, that starts to make this an existential crisis for industries. You know, beyond I might sell more beyond I might, you know, I have a cost of compliance. But actually if if I can't get access to an appropriate pool of capital at an appropriate cost of capital, I've got a major problem.
0: If we look at pools of capital, Larry thinks BlackRock has ten trillion, I repeat ten trillion assets under management. And it's it's only growing. I mean Larry and the team have done phenomenal there. And if a bank if you look at a, a JP Morgan with Jamie Diamond, or you look at City and they're not gonna loan you there because you can't prove this. Well, you're right, the, you cut off the credit, you cut off the cash flow, you're gonna strangle it. There's there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And if you, you look at an industry, it's booming right now, mining, Rio Tinto announced record profits, a $7.7 billion dividend. Did they start to feel the pressure? Wait a second, we gotta embrace renewable energy. We have to embrace transparency and trackability, or we're gonna get access to capital cut. Investors are going to flee for us and banks aren't going to loan to us at favorable interest rates. Yes,
1: I I think that's absolutely a driver. I mean, obviously, you mentioned Rio Tinto. Clearly, their chief executive, your previous chief exec, lost his job, largely because, you know, indigenous artifacts were destroyed in mining operations. Now, you know, that's not necessarily an ESG metric that everybody has to worry about. But if you're in Canada or Australia, it is. And so it's an example of an ESG metric that can go right to the top of an organization. I mean, BHP, whom we talked about earlier, is another one who, who sees that their term for this is product stewardship, you know, making things responsibly and more sustainably is a core way of differentiating what they produce from, for example, a producer of, say, nickel in, from Indonesia, which is associated with things like deep sea tailings um, and other potentially you know, environmentally damaging processes like acid le- leaching and other things.
0: Uh, a hypothetical, I'm Acme Mining Corporation. I'm, I'm looking at this. What is the circular brand proposition for me as Acme Mining?
1: First of all, setting up your operation so that you can actually measure from the get-go what your carbon footprint is of your material or what your water use is and what you do with your wastewater. So essentially, you're you're setting up an operation to be more sustainable from the start and and building in the benefit of your ESG data to the parcel of material. One of the things we we did with BHP in that Southwire project that you mentioned is essentially attaching a package of ESG metrics to a parcel of material that then goes on its journey through the supply chain, essentially, you know, improving, potentially improving the value of that product over some of their competitors. And for those looking for more sustainable raw material, it's, you know, you're going to go with someone who can prove it to you.
0: Not only do you allow me to improve value, you're going to allow me to expand my margins. Yes. That's, that's game changing. So, for, for my shareholders and investors, I can say, look, we're, we're growing our profit margin. We're, we're cleaning up the environment and growing our profit margin. As Larry Fink says, it's a, it's a win win. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier, Traffic Gear, one of the largest commodity uh, trading houses in the world, you're tracking their nickel and cobalt supply chains for CO2 emissions. That's a very big change for a historically opaque market. How did the Traffic Gear partnership? come about and, and what is Traffic era looking to do with Circular?
1: So Traffic era, um signed an off-taker agreement with um, the DRC government for um, responsibly mined artisanal cobalt in, in the DRC. Now they've been running a pilot for a few years at a location called Mutoshi which is a, a managed artisanal site and by managed I mean it's a fenced site only authorized workers are allowed in there they're still digging you know, with, with with hand tools, but you know they, they're wearing PPE, and you know there's no kids on site, and, and the the overburden has been removed, so people aren't digging in very deep shafts, which are of course inherently dangerous, um, and ensuring that they are fairly paid. Now, based on that, you know, multi-year pilot, which most people regard as a you know breaking break a success. They did an arrangement with the the Congolese government to become an off-taker. This was signed in November 2020, an off-taker or currently the only off-taker of, you know, responsibly mined artisanal cobalt from the DRC. And, uh, you know, if you're going to run a site, then you have to be able to, if you're going to be able to then sell it on the global market, you have to be able to prove that what you're selling has come from those responsibly managed sites. And therefore, we are... Um, going to be providing traceability from from those sites, from the point of the mine, via a buying centre to you know uh, to the processing centre to a smelter and then to export, um, which is the point at which it's probably traded, and uh, and that's really part of good delivery essentially that you are getting what you're paying for, which is responsibly sourced cobalt. Now, as it happens, you know, Trafigura has a nickel and a cobalt desk, same desk. And uh, when we when we explained to them what we could do in terms of not just reliable traceability, but also the ability to attach other ESG metrics beyond human rights to that material, like carbon, you know, for a commodity trader, you go, well, that opens up you know a potential to create some price differential around sustainably and, and you know, sustainably sourced nickel, uh, and and arguably opens opportunities around carbon trading as well. Um, and so, you know, and all of it relies on being able to deliver what you you've just sold someone.
0: Jeremy Weir, the executive chairman and CEO of Traffic Gear, he's made a lot of public statements fully embracing this. Is yes. this what what you're doing with Traffic Gear, does that eventually go over to Glencore and to other commodity trading houses and say, okay, the Circular Traffic Gear partnership is the future of commodity trading?
1: Well, obviously I've drunk the Kool-Aid, so I think it is. Glen- Glencore, Glencore has been trying for um, about two years now to try and build a platform that does something very similar to what we do. Um, the, the disadvantage, uh, obviously take this with a pinch of salt because clearly, you know, I would say this, but the disadvantage is that, you know, Glencore essentially certifying its own operations is perhaps not regarded with the same degree of, no disrespect to Glencore, but reliability that a neutral actor would be. There's a reason why certifiers like SGS and UL exist in supply chains. And there's a reason why actors like Circular are neutral. We play no part at all in these supply chains. We simply, you know, provide proof. Um, and so I see a number of homegrown solutions where folks recognize the value of this kind of traceability, but doing it yourself may not be the right answer. The market eventually will will tell.
0: It's not the right answer. Uh, I won't name incidents, but just look in history. When when certain <laughs> commodity traders self-certified stuff, there yeah. was a lot of not so ethical stuff going on then.
1: Yeah. Totally, totally. It's one of the reasons why you know I believe that being you know us being a neutral actor is an important part of this process. Um, we've actually we actually have a, a partnering arrangement with SGS where you know essentially two, in their case, the certifier and in us a, in our case obviously a traceability provider combined, we, we offer a powerful proposition of of neutrality.
0: As circular scales and quote unquote becomes the de facto standard. How do you ensure that the company continues to stay neutral?
1: Well, you know, we're, we're currently quite well capitalized. We've got, you know, extensive venture capital backing. We've got, you know, we're, we're in the process of another funding round. The intention eventually is to go public. You know, we have the advantage at the moment of, of having created the standard by being the first. And, and our challenge now is obviously to remain not so much the 1st there they'll always be competitors, but remain a leader in this space. Um, and if we can do that given that that you know we think the broad mute music around improving sustainability metrics and better reporting vsG is important and and a recognition that the you know this greater transparency in supply chains is something that I think is a movement you can't stop we we just have to be able to ride the crest of that wave so neutrality comes from scale and as, as does impact you know the more we the more customers we acquire the the greater the impact we will have in the world um, and it's the sort of self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing, virtuous circle.
0: Well, you can ride the wave to your own surf shack and get that beautiful uh, (laughs) wave there in in, in Bali, if that's where you choose to go. And when you look at transparency in the supply chain, looking to the future, will we get to a point where global consumers will begin to demand conflict-free carbon-neutral minerals in their products because Apple, for example, has done a really great job and you see Tim Cook go on stage and he puts the graphics behind him of the recycled materials and Apple's kind of really honed in there the recycling program. So it's getting ingrained into into the into the psyche of consumers. Does that begin to become a defining factor? I'm going to buy product A versus product B because this one has conflict free carbon neutral minerals in it.
1: Yes. I mean, <clears throat> it, it's only a matter of time before brands don't just talk about it, but actually give the consumer the opportunity to inform themselves or prove to themselves that those claims are true. One of the car manufacturers that we're working with is actually you know, starting to explore how, you know, if you buy one of their cars, you'll eventually get a, let's call it a Certificate of Responsible Sourcing with a QR code on it. And if you're interested, you can scan it and you'll see, you know, where your cobalt came from or, or whatever it happens to be. Now, we're not quite there yet because actually, you know, the, we're in the early foothold, foothills of the Himalayas and we've got a bit of a mountain to climb to get to that point. But I think the aspiration is sound. And if you think of someone like Polestar and their Polestar Zero, you know, big claim to have a carbon neutral car. But guess how long will it take a journalist to say prove it?
0: I, I could name one right now that's, that's probably calling Volvo every, every day to say prove it. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you use the Himalayas, we're, we're still at base camp. We haven't started the climb up Everest, but we will get there. And as we start the, the climb up Everest and the, and the circular economy starts to become a global circular economy, what role do you want circular to play in that future?
1: Much of Much of what we talked about is the primary supply of raw materials from mine to first use. Uh, and you also mentioned earlier recycling now recycling of course, is at a version of the circular economy. The second use of a material, whether it 's clothing or a, an electric vehicle battery, is also a legitimate use of uh, of of uh, the circular economy as a business model. Those business models are in their infancy and and, and you know if you 're going to reuse something like um, a, a battery, for example, an e v battery it 's a, a large commodity with data around its previous use and its embedded carbon footprint, but it's also an asset that's being financed by someone. You need to know where it is. And all of those things require data. Um, So the sort of data that we've just been talking about in the primary supply of raw materials is just as relevant to the circular economy um, and to unlocking those sort of business models that make it economic to have EV batteries not just straight away be recycled, but potentially find their way into energy storage systems as well. Then what's the future of circular? We uh, we we started off with a mission to be able to demonstrate a, a reliable chain of custody of materials in these complex industrial supply chains. So the next step of our journey has been to equip our customers with um, the knowledge of what they 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 were inheriting. You can't manage something you can't measure. And the next step of the journey is to become a, an intelligence tool. Essentially, you know, if you are a buyer of something like an EV battery, you want to be able to ask yourself questions around you know, price, availability and sustainability and try and optimise for those, you know, competing challenges around, you know, the right price, the right quantity, and of course, you know, the sustainability or other ESG metrics of what it is you're buying. Um, and when you can start to see into a supply chain and pick different suppliers as a result of the, the data that has become available, that, you know, performance of those suppliers, that becomes a very, very powerful tool. Of course, all that granular data that I talked about in terms of scan points and cake recipes, clearly you can aggregate, um, you, can, um, you can start to apply deep learning to that data in order to find insights about how global supply chains are working, potentially re- reduce the amount of working capital tied up in the very inefficient paper-based processes for import, export, duty, etc. across multiple countries. Uh, which, of course, improves the efficiency without cost engineering the participants, improves the efficiencies of, of these supply chains. EVs are currently too expensive for mass adoption, largely because of the cost of the battery. You know, Finding cost, cost optimization opportunities there by, for example, just reducing working capital can actually increase the, the level of adoption of things like EVs, for example. So there are many potential opportunities for the data.
0: You're optimizing
1: the supply chain essentially that's the idea i mean sap did it with with processes inside the organization we're essentially trying to do the same thing with processes outside the organization
0: there's no doubt the the next step in your your journey is bright you could also say the next step in your journey is clean because you're bringing transparency to opaque industries you're bringing sustainability forefront so we thank you for that and you're going to ensure that it's good for the environment well it's good for society so i thank you for that as well and doug as we look to wrap up this really insightful conversation, where we learned a lot, we shined a light on a really evolving industry, what would you like our listeners to take away with them?
1: I think the one takeaway is that our collective consumption of stuff has a significant consequence through you know, the, the global supply chain's contribution to manufacturing things. Um, it's now possible to see that and with it start to manage it. So you know we will never get anywhere near net zero if we don't Tackle the supply chain's contribution to the manufacture of goods. And the time to start that is now because it's going to be a long journey.
0: The the time is now, and in the future, consumers will think before they buy and they'll ask the hard questions because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is transparency. Doug, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today.
1: Great pleasure. Thank you. Nice to talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, Please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when we speak with John Deere's Joe Liefer, who will examine the challenges facing today's farmers and the role autonomous tractors will play on the farms of the future. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.